0: Okay, hey, good morning everyone. Uh, it's really good to see all of you again. And uh, it's really good to be up here again as well, <laughs> after a few weeks. So let's go to God in prayer as we ask God to help us to really understand His Word today. So let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We humbly ask for your help to understand your Word, that you may help us to bridge the thousands of years between ourselves and the time of Samuel. But yet to understand what it means that you are our God and that we are your people. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, do you ever suffer from the problem of forgetfulness? Uh, do you forget things? Well, I'm, unfortunately, I, I suffer from the problem of forgetfulness. I can't remember people's names. My apologies if I've got your name wrong. Uh, I lose my keys, you know, I misplace things. Uh I forget appointments, but thankfully no weddings yet. Now, I think it's a problem that we all face, isn't it? The, the problem of forgetfulness. And I guess we can get even more forgetful as we get older. But I think that today we're looking at a problem which is a lot more significant than the problem of just everyday forgetfulness. Losing keys, forgetting appointments, forgetting people's names. But we're we, we actually confronted with the problem of spiritual forgetfulness. And here in this passage, uh, in this, I guess, stark example of spiritual forgetfulness, we see that actually it's not just the mundane things that we lose, but if we lose our knowledge, our passion for God, we actually lose a relationship with God, eternal life in our souls itself. So let's look at today's passage and see what we can learn about ourselves, whether we do suffer from spiritual forgetfulness, whether we are in danger of that, and what we can do about it. Now, as we come to 1 Samuel 12, we've actually looked at Samuel last year, so it's a, it's a bit of a while before, uh, now that we've come back to it. But here in 1 uh, Samuel chapter 12, we are coming to a watershed moment in the history of God's people, the people of Israel. It is a critical defining moment in their history, and we can see that right from the first verse. In verse 1, it says, Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you have said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and grey, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth to this day. Now, it's a watershed and defining moment in the history of Israel because on this day, they will be moving to a new political system in Israel. Uh, In all the past, as we read in the book of Judges, up to 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, when they entered into the Promised Land, it was all about Judges. The political system was of Judges. So, if you look here, in this map okay so uh, sorry if it's a bit small but hopefully you can get the picture so remember if you look uh, in the history of Israel just a very fast forward through the history of Israel in the book of Exodus we saw that God had taken his people out of slavery in Egypt brought them through the desert and then he brought them to the promised land the promised land flowing with milk and honey the land of Israel in the book of Joshua we saw that God had brought the people into the land, they had uh, conquered the land and they had populated the land. Okay, next slide. Now, God had parceled out uh, the land of Israel to the 12 tribes. Okay, the 12 tribes are there, you can count it yourselves, and they're all represented by different colors, although you can't see it very well from where you are. But there are 12 tribes there. And the political system which was existent during that time in the Book of Judges, which we read, I think, uh, two years ago, basically these 12 tribes existed in the land and they were sort of like semi-autonomous but they all pledged their loyalty towards God. And whenever they faced a danger there were lots of uh, dangerous enemies there were the Moabites the Edomites I think there were the Aramites the Ammonites and the Philistines who lived in the land whenever these people rose up and fought against uh, the, Israel, uh, the, the tribes of Israel God would raise up a judge and that judge would call the people together and they would fight and fight off that threat. Now fortunately, as we look in chapter 12 verse 1, the people of Israel, God's people, had said that this system was not working for us. They looked at the neighbors, the Aramites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Philistines and said, look, they seem to be more successful than we are. And what is the solution? The problem must be the problem of organization. They are more organized than we are and they are more organized because of their political system because they all had kings. And when you have a king, you have an army, you have a treasury and you have a standing uh, force ready to always fight these neighboring armies rather than calling up and conscripting people under a judge. So they looked for a change. They wanted a change from the judge political system to one under a monarchy. So you remember uh, Barack Obama? You know Barack Obama? What was his campaign slogan? Change, right? We want change. Vote for change. Our time for change. Stand for change. Organize for change. And that's what the people of Israel did all those thousands of years ago in Samuel's time. They wanted change. They wanted a change from the judge political system to a monarchy. And they called Samuel that they wanted a king and they got a king in King Saul. Now here, as we look in 1 Samuel chapter 12, it's like the coronation ceremony where uh, King Saul has been anointed as king, he's been crowned as king, and here, Samuel, as the last judge and prophet, he's giving like his farewell speech. It should be a time of joy and celebration. But the funny thing happens, isn't it, when Samuel stands up to address the crowd. Because in verse 3, He says to the crowd of people, the nation of Israel, He says, Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of these things, I will make it right. And they all said, You have not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them in verse 5, The Lord is the witness against you and is anointed. The king is anointed. Is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And he is witness, they said. So here, Samuel stands before the crowd and he says, Look, have I abused you? Have I exploited you? Have I acted corruptly in any way? And the whole nation says, No. And he says, Make sure you are very sure about that, right? As God is my witness, as the king is your witness, have I acted corruptly or abused power in any way? And they've said, no. Two times, they declare the innocence of Samuel. Now, why does Samuel bother to declare his innocence? Is Is he worried that, you know, after he stands down, they'll chase after him for corruption charges or, you know, set up a royal commission or inquiry into his rule? No, I don't think so, isn't it? Because, basically, as we move along, we see that Samuel, once he's that they've declared his innocence turns the tables on the people of Israel and he says I'm going to move from sitting on the seat of the accused to become your accuser I'm going to go from being the defense to being the prosecutor and what he's going to do is he's going to start bringing charges against the people of Israel he's going to bring God's case against the people of Israel And here, in verse 6 to 13, is where the meat of the passage really comes in. Because in verse 6, he charges them with the first charge that God has brought against the people of Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. Now here's the first charge that Samuel brings on behalf of God to the people of Israel, God's people. And the first charge is really found in there in verse 9a, isn't it? That they forgot God. They forgot the righteous acts of God. And here, in verse 6 to 13, it summarized really the whole history of the beginning of the nation to and up to the point of uh, them going into the, the, the promised land and having the land and the judges. So it says there, right at the very beginning, in verse 8, after Jacob entered Egypt, now, who is this Jacob character? I mean, who's Jacob? Now, Jacob. If you look at the next slide, okay, this is uh, oh, you can see it's, it's Jacob, right? Jacob was the father of uh, God's people of Israel, all right. Um, he's not the father as in like the political father, but the literal, you know, birth father of the nation because he brought he was the father that brought his family, or which he was brought by God into Egypt to escape the famine. Now, when they were in Egypt, uh, many generations later, uh, Pharaoh forgot about the good things that uh, Jacob and Joseph did for the nation. And they put the people into slavery and God rescued his people. Remember, he did a lot of miracles. The ten plagues which he brought against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He parted the Red Sea. He brought them to the desert. He fed them with manna. Uh, He made their clothes not wear out. He led them into the promised land. So on the next slide. So he brought them from here into the promised land. And when they went in, they forgot about God. And the first charge really is about spiritual forgetfulness. They forgot the righteous acts that God had done for them to bring them into the promised land. They forgot about God. And this was exactly what God had reminded them not to do when they went into the promised land, not to forget about God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, next slide. Alright, when they went into the promised land, God had said, look, when you go into the land, do not forget about what I've done for you, do not forget the Lord. So here, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this is exactly what verse 6 to 9 is indicting the people of God, of forgetting God, forgetting the righteousness of God, that it was God who brought you into the promised land. Now, as we look at this passage, I don't know about you, but when I read it, I asked myself, am I like that? Am I guilty like the people all those thousands of years ago of spiritual forgetfulness? Uh, I don't know whether when you read it, you ask yourself that, whether you suffer from Spiritual forgetfulness. Because we are like the people those thousands of years ago. God did not save us from Pharaoh, right? God did not save us from Malaysia or something, you know? Free us from the slavery or bondage from Malaysia, okay? But God freed us from slavery to sin. He freed us from God's judgment, from hell, from God's wrath. Because he sent Jesus to do the righteous act of dying on the cross for us. And the question that was posed to the Israelites is the same that is posed for us today. Have we forgotten the righteous acts of God done for us? Do we suffer from spiritual forgetfulness? Now I just came back from uh, three weeks leave. And during those three weeks leave, uh, I didn't really do much except read novels and walk around and swim and veg out. But during this time, uh, even though it was just a short three weeks, I I felt myself feeling symptoms of spiritual forgetfulness. You know, I felt distant from God, you know, because I don't have to study the Bible every day, prepare for sermon, prepare for Bible studies, prepare for Bible study leading. So I started feeling distant from God and I really looked forward to going to church on Sunday. Uh, I didn't come to PC, I went to some other churches. But I remember when I went there, I really looked forward to the singing of the songs, to praying, to listening to God's word. Why? Because it helped me remember what God had done for me. It's just like singing that last song, isn't it? Uh, do you remember? See, what, uh, test whether you're suffering from forgetfulness. What song do we sing before we the sermon started? Something about grace, right? Okay. See, you know, it's like when you sing about grace. You remind yourself of God's grace for you. And I, when I went to those church services, I, I felt myself being reminded, not just in my, in my heart, my mind, but in my heart as well, and filled with passion and thankfulness for God's righteous acts in my life. Because it's all too easy to forget what God has done for you and forget God. We can be overwhelmed by worries about families and finances. I, 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 does anyone here feel like that? <clears throat> overwhelmed by worries about feelings of insecurity about your finances or your families and you feel distant from God. Maybe you're tied up, addicted by work. Anybody feel like that? And you feel distant. God seems so far away. Or you're distracted or, pre- by, or preoccupied by hobbies. Maybe you're thinking about your hobby right now or you're sitting the, in the sermon. And God seems very far away that He's not very real to you. Well, I think that if that is you, and you suffer from spiritual forgetfulness, then you need to take serious action. Because the charges that Samuel brought against the people were serious charges. Go home, open your Bible, read your Bible. Don't just open it on a Sunday or a Bible study. I'm convinced that if you only open your Bibles on a Sunday or a Bible study, you will, over time, suffer from spiritual forgetfulness. And read it. Uh Like why was telling me he read this book by John Piper, don't just read your Bibles mechanically, but read it until it speaks to you in a real and living way, right so that it really brings back to you what God has done for you and who God is in your life. so that was the first charge over and over again in the history of God's people. They have forgot about the Lord, their God, and they forgot about his righteous acts all the way from Egypt to the Promised Land. So in verse 9, the second charge comes in, and this is linked with the problem of forgetfulness. So because they forgot the Lord their God, so God sold them into the hand of Caesarea, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephah, Samuel and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. So as we studied uh, the book of uh, Judges and even as we moved to 1 Samuel, we saw that there was a pattern. As the people forgot God, they went into sin and idolatry And because of sin and idolatry, things got bad in the promised land. The enemies became more numerous and powerful and Israel became weaker and enslaved. And the solution every time for for God's people was to cry out to God for forgiveness, to repent. And every time God would save and deliver them. And how would God save and deliver them? He would send them, the judges. Right In verse 11, the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel. So every time they struggled, what was the cause? It wasn't because the enemies had a better political system. It was because they were disobedient and sinful against God. And what was the solution? The one and only solution was to cry out to God and God would come and help them by raising up the judge and he would empower the judge and the people to defeat the enemy. But the problem was that in verse 12, as, uh, this is, uh, goes back to what happens in chapter 8 to 11 of 1 Samuel. For the very first time in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, it says that in verse 12, which summarizes the old incident, But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. So what happened here was, and this is the second charge. In the time of Judges, the right response was to always turn back to God and to cry out and say, we have sinned. To repent and say, we are wrong, we are going to change. And God would come and raise up a judge and save them. But in verse 12, which recounts what happens in chapter 8 and 9 and 10, for the very first time, the people shortcut and short-circuit that process of repenting, of crying out for forgiveness, and they say, no. This time, we are not going to turn to the Lord our God, our real king, but we are going to put our faith in a human king itself. So when they said, and their Obama slogan, we want change, they weren't really asking a change from judges to kings. They were really asking for a change from God the king to Saul the king. They were putting their faith on an earthly king instead of a heavenly God. And that was a great sin against God, isn't it? Because they had failed to see that right from the very beginning, from Egypt to the desert, from the desert to the promised land to the judges, it was God who was saving them. And instead of putting their faith in God, they put their faith in King Saul instead. Now, I know that for many people, including ourselves, saying sorry is hard, isn't it? Uh, You know, Elton John, a famous philosopher, said sorry is uh, the hardest word, isn't it? We find it hard to say sorry to people. In fact, I I know uh, some people tell me that uh, some people they know never say sorry at all. Uh, I know some people as well who never say sorry as well. And it was the same for the Israelites. They they not want to say sorry to God. They do not want to cry out to God and say, we are wrong. We have sinned. We will repent. And I think that as you look at this part of the passage, as we come up to verse 11 to 12, I think that the, the Israelites, God's people, are unmoved by what, Samuel is rebuking them by, you notice they're not weeping, they're not gnashing their teeth, they're no ashes on their head, they're not tearing their clothes in repentance. Samuel is preaching to them, but nothing is happening. It's not reaching that high. And that's why I think in verse 16 and 19 are so important, because verse 16 and 19, Samuel needs a sign from God to show that what he is charging the Israelites with is actually God's verdict on his people. So in verse 16 to 19, you can read it for yourself. God sends a great thunderstorm to destroy their wheat harvest. Now you might kind of say, well, what's the big deal, isn't it? Because, you know, there's a thunderstorm in Singapore every day. There was just a thunderstorm last night, yesterday afternoon, isn't it? But apparently in the Middle East, the wheat harvest is during the months of May to June and it's the dry season. It never rains in May to June. So for Samuel to say, okay, I'm going to send thunder and rain, and the thunder and rain comes, is actually a sign from God of judgment. A sign of God's verdict on God's people. That the charge that Samuel brings against God's people is true. They are guilty of the sin, of falling into sin, failing to repent, failing to cry out to God, and turning to a man-made creature in faith and in trust instead. Now, I think it's so easy for us to make the same mistake. When you forget God and God seems so far away, when you live a life of persistent sin, it's hard for us to find our, I guess, the humility and the wisdom to go back to God and say, yes, I've sinned, I will change. It's so much easier for us to turn to man-made Solutions. Now, I've had friends and Christian brothers and sisters over the years and sometimes the sin is so obvious in their life and I say to them, look, you need to cry out to God and say, I- I'm a sinner. I- I've sinned in this way and I'm, I'm not, not going to sin this way, I need to change. But instead of repenting, just like the Israelites, they try one thing after another except what God wants them to do, which is to cry out repentance and forgiveness and change. Uh, I've seen friends of mine go from church to church to church, thinking that by going to a different church, a different environment, that somehow it will solve their problem. They go to listen to different people, different friends, different pastors, who tell them, oh, actually, you're not such a bad sinner after all, you know, your problem is not that bad. I've even got friends of mine who will see a psychiatrist instead and say, well actually, you don't have a sin problem, you have a personality problem. But it doesn't solve the problem, isn't it? They are putting their faith in a man-made solution when what really matters is to confess to God that you have sinned, to turn back to God and to repent. That's why 1 John chapter 1, it consistently reminds us That if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So the first charge that Samuel brought was they forgot God. The second charge was that they had not cried out to God or repented or turned back to God, but had turned a human idol instead a useless idol instead now as we come to this point in the passage if we were God and we were faced with such a rejection such rebellion I guess for myself I would say well we'll just give up on these people what do they deserve over and over again remember God as we read the book of Judges had given them a judge and they kept forgetting God and turning away from him but yet God kept coming back and helping them and now they had raised the stakes of their sinfulness and their rebellion. They had asked for a king and they rejected the judges and God himself. So what, what should God do? Well, God should actually punish and judge them and destroy them. But look at what it says there in verse 22. Okay, verse 22, look at what it says there. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Instead of getting what they deserve, God gives them grace. He gives them grace, isn't it? Some people people say, oh you know, when you read the Old Testament there's no grace. God is an angry God all the time. But actually verse 22 says that God is a God of grace. They deserve judgment and wrath and God's anger but what do they get? They get grace. They get unmerited favor, they get a second chance which they don't deserve. God says, I will not reject you because you are such great people. No, that's not what it says, isn't it? It says, because of His great name, God will not reject His people because He was pleased to make them His own. God, out of His free will, chose His people. And even though they sinned and again and again, He was willing to forgive them. He was willing to get them back and God says to these people look even though you've rejected me and chosen a king I will not reject you but on one condition you must come back to me you must restore your relationship with me and the king that you've chosen he must serve me together with you so if you look here in verse 14 next slide verse 14 verse 20 verse 23 right it's sort of repeated in the narrative. Uh, and i sort of extracted it for you and put it up there. But he says the same thing. To, in order to come back to God, it must be a relationship of service and obedience and reverence and awe and fear. In verse 14 he says, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey Him and do not rebel against His commands, and if both you and the King who reigns over you follow the Lord, your God, good. In verse 20, Don't be, do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet you do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And verse 23, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and to serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you, remember? They have forgotten the righteous things that God had done, now consider the great things He has done for you. The repeated theme here is to fear God, to serve God and to obey God. The offer of God's grace is there. God is willing to accept them back. But in order for them to come back, they must fear God, serve God and they must obey God. Now I know that there are some pastors in some churches in Singapore who will teach that you can do whatever you want and God will still accept you and God will still love you. You can sin again and sin again and sin again and again and again and again all you want and God will still forgive you. You can be the king of your life and God will never leave you. Well, that's rubbish, isn't it? That's rubbish because when you look at this passage, in order to come back and to get the benefits of God's grace, in order to be in relationship with God, in order to be the recipients of God's grace and His forgiveness. Well, God wants us to have a relationship of fear and awe and reverence and service and obedience to Him. If you persist in forgetting God, if you persist in sinning and turning away from God, what does it say there, by the very end, in verse 25? If you persist in doing evil, both you and your King will perish. If you choose to turn away from God and his grace, then there is no salvation for you. And that's why the most important thing it says there in uh, verse twenty three that Samuel says for him to serve them is that he would keep praying for them and keep teaching them what is good and right. right notice that it's sort of just a, a side there in verse twenty three. He says, look, I I can't help it. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. See, for Samuel, his role that he sees himself as serving the nation is to pray for them. Now, what does Samuel pray for God's people for? Does he pray that they will be very rich and powerful? Does he pray that they will be very healthy? No, I think within this context he's is praying for them that they will not forget God, that they will serve God, that they will fear God. And that's why he will teach them what is good and right. Now I know that um, uh, just last week uh, someone was telling me about how uh, they, were, they were looking for a church and they were, actually they were telling my wife about how they were looking for a church and, and they said, well, I only want to go to a church where the sermons make me feel good about myself. She was telling my wife that, you know, she wants sermons that only cheer her up and buoy her spirits. But unfortunately, as much as good it will do for her emotional well-being, that is not the point of church, isn't it? The point of church, as we see here, what Samuel is saying, is to keep us strong in our relationship with God, to keep us strong in Christ. And when we come to church, we must pray for one another, That we will not forget God. That we will continue to obey God and fear Him. That we will not fall into sin. See, the only way that we can continue on in salvation is to truly examine ourselves and our hearts and ask ourselves, are we really right with God in the way that we relate to Him? The offer of grace and salvation is always there, but only comes to those who fear God and to serve and obey Him. In Romans chapter 11, it says, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. In Hebrews chapter 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said it is mine to avenge I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See here as we look at Romans chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 10, there is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. He is a God who is full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. But at the same time, in order to have a relationship with him, you cannot forget him and persistently turn away from him and treat him like dirt. So we are people who have already received God's grace. We are already a people who have received His righteous acts in Jesus. But we only can continue if we hold on to that faith. Now I've been a Christian now for 25 years and in my lifetime, I suppose, my short lifetime, I've seen so many people fall away from their faith in Jesus Christ. And they fall away in all the different stages of their life. I've seen people fall away when they're students. I've seen people fall away when they're retired. I've seen people fall away when they return from studies overseas. I see people fall away when they're army. I see people fall away when they begin work. I see people fall away when they continue work. I see people fall away when they get married. I see people fall away when they have children. I see people fall away when they're in Singapore and when they are overseas. I see people fall away when they're young and old. I've even seen my pastor. I've even seen uh, a lecturer in my theological college fall away. Now when I look at each one of these people, what they go through is exactly the same as what the people of Israel felt, how they fell in 1, 1 Samuel chapter 12. They forget God. God has done all these great things for them, but He seems so far and remote from them. And as they forget God they fall into sin, persistent sin and they don't cry out to God for forgiveness and they don't seek to repent. Now as we reflect on today's passage, is that is that is that us? Is that you? Is that me? Because the offer of God's grace is always there. And once we turn back to Him, He will always receive us. But there's only one way to go back to Him. It's not just with our words but by really remembering Him in our minds and our hearts and seeking to fear and serve and obey Him in everything that we do. Let's go back to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we stand before you today, we pray that we will never forget all the righteous acts that you've done for us. And most of all, we remember how you sent your very own Son, Jesus, to come onto this earth to die on the cross for our forgiveness, and to rise again to give us new life. We pray that it will never be an old message for us, a message that we treat with cynicism or skepticism, a message that seems jaded, a message which seems remote from us. But make it to us to be as real and alive and living for us today as it was as when we first became Christians. Dear Father, may we never fall into sin and turn to some sort of other solution, to some man-made solution, but to see that sin must be dealt with only by crying out to you for forgiveness and repentance. We pray that we will never grow soft in our attitude to sin in our personal life. That as we grow older, as we become more mature in our faith, we become more and more intolerant of the of the sin in our life. We become more sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our heart. That we become more receptive to the warnings of our conscience. That as we sin, we will hate it more and more, and it will cry out to you more and more, and that we will repent and always turn back to you in everything, in fear and service and obedience. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.